0: The American Breakfast is a staple of diners and kitchen tables up and down the country. But that wasn't always the case. In fact, the American Breakfast was the brainchild of the self-styled father of public relations, the man who literally saved the U.S. meat industry's bacon. Welcome to Rigged, the story of disinformation. And Rigged will rummage through the bag of tricks used by PR to shape the world you live in. These tricks are used to manipulate your feelings, fend off regulation, and evade public scrutiny. Over the last century, they've rigged the media, the government, society really, to benefit the rich and powerful, with sometimes ridiculous and sometimes profoundly serious effects on our democracy. This is a podcast about that war for hearts and minds and bacon, right here on U.S. soil. I'm Amy Westervelt. Today's trick, fake experts. But first, breakfast. Cracking your eggs nice and gently. Just a little sprinkling of the cayenne to make the eggs a little bit spicy. Then into a preheated oven for six to eight minutes. Meanwhile, onto my bacon, and I'm giving it a classic American twist. We're just going to
1: bring it back down to ground level and make proper scrambled eggs and perfectly cooked bacon. We're basically just going over the most basic breakfast you can make. We're just gonna take the simple ingredients, we just have eggs, we just have bacon, and we have
0: some toast. So one of the requests was, show me three ways that I can cook bacon. Well, actually I could show you four if I was in my house with my deep fryer. (laughs) It's hard to imagine it was ever rare for Americans to eat bacon with breakfast. Go to most diners in the country today, and what's listed under classic breakfast almost all include bacon, pancakes and bacon, bacon and eggs, French toast and bacon, bacon with bacon, wrapped in more bacon.
2: Let me tell you, <laughs> as a vegan... Yeah. Breakfast is the most obnoxious meal yes. to eat out because it's all bacon, mm-hmm. sausage. Yeah. I couldn't eat a damn thing on
0: that This is Mary Anais Hegler, my friend and frequent collaborator. I've spent most of the last 20 years researching disinformation and propaganda. And mostly that entails sitting in the dark corner of an archive looking through the papers of a long-dead PR guy. And then going, oh my God, this can't be real. Is it real? I don't know to myself. When I need to sanity check something, I call up Mary. I brought whiskey for
2: this occasion because I have no idea where this is. That's going. good. That's good.
0: So, okay, it might seem totally normal that the classic American breakfast is built around bacon because so many of the first settlers in America were from the UK or Ireland. <laughs> The Brits were curing, salting, and eating pork belly from the early Middle Ages onward. And by the 18th century, it was a standard part of the English breakfast. Look, in 1 AD, British people didn't exactly have a great life expectancy anyway. English immigrants to the American colonies brought pigs with them. And bacon really took off in the New World, where there was plenty of space to build hog heaven. By the 1870s, Cincinnati was known as Porkopolis, and Chicago meatpacking plants were butchering more than a million pigs every year. For workers doing manual labor on a farm or maybe in a mine or the railroads, a meaty breakfast helped them get through the day. But as the 20th century marched on, most Americans weren't doing that kind of work anymore. Even in factories, people weren't expending as much energy. And a health food, back to nature kind of movement emerged and began reshaping the American diet. So for most Americans, breakfast had become a pretty light meal. A piece of toast or a roll maybe, juice, coffee, that's it. With the disappearance of the cooked breakfast, bacon was facing its own demise. It's arham if you like. Enter Edward Bernays, one of the founders of modern public relations. If you listen to my other podcast, Drilled, you might remember Bernays from his work with the oil industry. We'll stick a link in the show notes for those of you who are curious. At any rate, Bernays considered himself of high pedigree, often boasting about being Sigmund Freud's double nephew. Wait, what?
1: Well, my mother was his younger sister and my father was the brother of his wife.
0: Oh, weird flex, but okay. Growing up with the Freuds had a huge impact on Bernays.
1: I heard about my uncle's theory of dream interpretation. I heard about psychology as being an important force in evaluating human behavior. I heard of Repression and regression and suppression and projection and and taboos and Oedipal complexes.
0: Bernays loved to tell this story. In fact, it's hard to find an interview with him where he didn't mention it. There are two types of PR guys: the behind-the-scenes Svengali types who keep a low profile, and then there are the PR guys who make sure they're the story. Bernays was definitely the latter. He spent as much time on his own image as he did on his clients. Another part of this image was to cast himself as the father of public relations. If people took that to mean he was the world's first publicist, he didn't correct them. But that title actually belonged to his friend, colleague, and mentor, a guy named Ivy Lee that you'll meet in a minute. First, more Bernays. Bernays loved sitting around listening to double-uncle Siggy's theories, but his father wanted him to do something practical with his life. He even sent Bernays to Cornell to study agriculture, hoping he'd follow his father into the grain business. But it quickly became clear that this was not in the cards. Eddie Bernays was not a grain guy. He fancied himself a member of the intellectual elite. He loved theater, books, singing. He wore expensive suits and flashy scarves. And he sported a mustache that definitely required grooming. He was a dandy, even by 1912 standards. Within a year of graduating, he was already working as a press agent for theater and ballet. And he loved it. He was already bringing Uncle Sigmund's theories into that work, too. When I found one of the earliest examples of that, I had to run it by Mary. He um, had this idea for a poster um, for a Russian ballet that he was working for, <laughs> and he he um, he had the one of the main dancers, a woman named Floor Rival, and he put her in like a really tight dress and took her to the Bronx Zoo and had her pose with a giant boa constrictor. <laughs> <laughs> This was like his. Oh my god! This was like sort of his first foray into incorporating his like uncle's theories about repressed sexual desire into PR and marketing. What did he
2: think? Like, (laughs) I don't understand. What's the message here? Is the snake a dick?
0: Basically, yes, yes. Very subtle. Very subtle. (laughs) I know, I know. Why? <laughs> what was the message? He was just trying to get people to go to the ballet, man. And he thought, like, sexy lady oh. holding the snake. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't all just snake dicks and ballet tickets. Bernays was about to have a huge impact on shaping the American story. Thanks to his successful work for the ballet, Bernays was tapped to join the government's propaganda arm. It was called the Committee for Public Information. It was a group of journalists, artists, filmmakers, and press agents, all brought together to sell the American public on the need to join World War I. The president, Woodrow Wilson, had been elected largely because he promised to stay out of the war. Now he had to sell the public on a U-turn. That was the committee's job, and they delivered. Here's a speech they wrote for one of the country's foremost bankers in 1918.
1: It is simply a question now of the survival of autocracy or democracy. They are in their death grapple. It is a fight to the finish. And it is up to us.
0: Bernays's role was to paint the picture abroad of Americans as fiercely independent freedom fighters who would liberate Europe and shine a light on the path forward to democracy. Here he is describing that time in the Adam Curtis documentary, "The Century of the Self."
1: At the age of 1926, I was in Paris for the entire time of the peace conference that was held in the suburb of Paris and. We work to make the world safe for democracy.
0: That was a big slogan. This was eye-opening to Bernays. Woodrow Wilson is famously one of the country's most boring and uncharismatic presidents. And propaganda had transformed him into a superhero. Freedom man.
1: When I came back to the United States, I decided that if you could use propaganda for war, you could certainly use it for peace. And propaganda got to be a bad word because of the Germans using it. So what I did was to try to find some other words. So we found the word council on public relations.
2: Wait, I have questions. So before this, was propaganda like a, a, an okay word? Yes. People were just like, yeah, we're just going to spin out some propaganda yes. and no big
0: deal. Yes. This is also why I think it's so funny when people try now to to like differentiate between PR and propaganda because they're literally the same thing.
2: So, okay, so... In 1910 or whatever, you could say, I work in propaganda with a straight face. Yes.
0: Yes. In fact, Bernays so crazy. wrote a book called Propaganda that was like considered a serious book. It wasn't like a critique of propaganda. It was like, here's how propaganda works. You know, it was the, the same as like a book now that would be like the basics of public relations.
2: <laughs> and so you're saying that well, at the end of World War I, that was when propaganda became a bad, a bad mm-hmm. word, a word you didn't want to say mm-hmm. out loud. Though people obviously kept doing yes, it. Yes, that's right. And this guy was like, let's just call it public relations. Mm-hmm. Let's use mm-hmm. two words instead of yeah. one.
0: Yeah, that's exactly wow. what he did. So how did this theater kid turned propagandist come to wage war on America's breakfast plate? And what does any of this have to do with Bacon. To answer that, we have to go back in time a bit to talk about the early days of the American Railroad. That's right, we're talking about trains. Back with that after this quick break. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors. Which is bad news because according to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. And in some cases, it could be a hundred times more polluted. Data shows that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths around the world. I have a strange little problem in my neck of the woods and that is that everybody likes to burn their garden trash and other trash too. Lots of trash burning going on in my neighborhood. Not great. Air Doctor has really, really helped. I just fire it up on days when I can tell everybody's lighting their trash fires and it keeps the household air clean. Air Doctor is the air purifier that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, Money, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold, so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code DRILLED to get up to 39% off or up to $300 off, depending on the model. Lock this special offer in by going to airdoctorpr Use the promo code DROP.
2: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
0: Remember, at the top of this episode, I mentioned that there was another guy who started doing PR before Bernays, Ivy Lee. He got his start working for the railroads and the coal companies, and eventually really made a name for himself working for the Rockefellers. We're going to talk about Lee again in this season because he was a real pioneer in this industry. But this time, we're going to focus on one technique in particular, fake experts. Or, I guess, real experts, but secretly funded by corporations. Today, we have this very warm and fuzzy, almost romantic view of the railroads. Traveling by train feels cool or special, maybe a little old-timey. Of course, the majority of trains now, as then, are not for travel, but for freight. For cheaply and quickly moving stuff from one part of the country to another. Oil, coal, wood, and all kinds of other goods zigzagged the country in trains every day. And back in the early 1900s, that was not a quaint or romantic affair. It was terrifying. Trains were constantly derailing and crashing because the industry cared way more about money than safety. They ran the trains too fast and too full, and it got so bad that in the late 1800s, the railways actually became the first industry to be regulated by the U.S. government. How bad does it have to be that you get regulated in the 1800s? It's like being kicked out of Westworld for bad behavior. So, yeah, not a huge shock that PR emerges right as the U.S. government first starts to regulate business and as the vote is being extended to lots of people who are not captains of industry. PR was a handy way to keep power in the hands of the powerful, in the face of creeping democracy. By the early 1900s, the public was starting to think this regulation thing was probably a good idea, and that annoyed the shit out of industry, which made PR even more appealing. Miners began striking and workers in other industries weren't far behind. Journalists began portraying America's executives as greedy industrialists who were cutting corners and exploiting workers. The public was hungry for industrialist blood. And this is when propagandist extraordinaire Ivy Lee stepped into the picture. Ivy Lee began arranging the first press tours and press conferences to show journalists just how much the railroad companies put into safety. He also created the Bureau of Railway Economics, which looked and sounded like an independent Bureau of Economists, but was entirely funded by the rail industry. The Bureau's experts pushed the same line again and again. They said regulations and taxes would be bad, They'd just increase costs and force job cuts for the railroads, and that would make everything more expensive for consumers. No one wants that, right? They said it made more sense to let the railroad companies handle these things themselves. And Lee left no stone unturned. One year, to promote a rate hike for his clients, Lee created a coordinated campaign designed to get the public behind paying more to have their goods, from hay to books, shipped across the country— Yes, you heard that right, that it was a good thing to pay more for shipping costs. First, he had the Bureau write to journalists across the country, briefing them that the railways had very high labor costs. Pretty soon, articles citing these costs started to appear everywhere. Then he placed ads and opinion pieces in more than 20,000 newspapers. Then he hosted events with local chambers of commerce and businessmen, encouraging each of them to write to 10 friends in support of the rate increase. At a certain point, Lee even casually left folders of information in passenger cars on trains for passengers to just happen across. It's honestly a miracle he didn't go door to door at this point. He must have really enjoyed riding the rails. It was a very clever campaign of manipulation, convince the public that the extra money they'd be paying would be going to workers. And it was absolutely not the fault of the railroad company, probably those greedy unions. Very few journalists knew that the bureau had been created by Lee and funded by the railroad companies themselves. None had any idea the lengths Lee was going to. Decades later, Bernays would deploy a similar tactic on behalf of a client who needed to sell, you guessed it, more bacon. Today, if you know the name Beech Nut at all, it's as a baby food company. But back then, they were known for ham and bacon. From the late 1800s to the 1940s, they were one of the country's primary providers of both. In the 1920s, they approached Eddie Bernays with a problem. You remember Eddie Bernays. He's the literal mustache-twirling villain from part one. Fancy scarves, double nephew, penis snake, that guy.
1: Many years ago, our client was the Beechingette Packing Company. We made a research and found out that the American public ate very light breakfast of coffee, maybe a roll and orange juice.
0: The U.S. had fewer and fewer manual workers in the 1920s and 1930s. Chances were high that the average U.S. worker would be sitting at a desk or in front of a sewing machine. They didn't need a gut-buster breakfast to get them through the day. And that's not great news if you sell bacon. So what to do? Bernays borrowed a page from his old friend Ivy Lee's book and found himself a fake expert. Well, technically a paid expert. What if a doctor said it was actually healthier to eat a big breakfast? Or better yet, what if a bunch of doctors said that?
1: We went to our physician, found that a heavy breakfast was sounder from the standpoint of health than a light breakfast because the body loses energy during the night and needs it during the day.
0: There is a serious amount of spin packed into this one sentence. Bernays says, we went to our physician. So right off the bat, it sounds like this is just your average family doctor. But we know from various documents Bernays left behind that he was, in fact, the PR firm's in-house doctor. So he's not exactly checking pulses and whacking knees. And then before we even hear what the doctor has to say, Bernays is planting an idea in our heads the body loses energy during the night. Sure, that makes sense, kind of. Then he goes on to explain how one doctor became many, all touting the health benefits of bacon.
1: We asked the physician, after telling him why we were talking to him, would he be willing at no cost to write to 5,000 physicians and asked them whether their judgment uh, was the same as his, confirmed his judgment.
0: Amazing! Would he be willing, at no cost because he already works for us, to write to 5,000 physicians? Willing? He'd be happy to! Anything to further the humanitarian mission of getting people to eat more bacon. Like Ivy Lee before him, Bernays realized that if the public knew that that doctor's expert opinion was bought and paid for, they would see right through the trick. We have no idea what exactly that doctor sent out or what exactly those 5,000 other doctors said back, but we do know that Bernays sent a press release out to all the papers and magazines saying all these doctors agree a heavier breakfast is better.
1: That was publicized in the newspapers newspapers throughout the country had headlines saying 4,500 physicians urge heavy breakfast in order to improve health of American people. Many of them stated that bacon and eggs should be embodied with the breakfast and as a result the sale of bacon went up
0: Oh, gee, I wonder why they just happened to suggest bacon and eggs as part of that heavier breakfast. So a bacon industry hungry for profits and a PR man hungry for kudos worked together to build an American institution, the classic American breakfast, bacon and eggs. But the PR industry's use of paid experts didn't stop at the diner since Lee and Bernays, loads of other industries have used paid experts. Eventually paid experts became key to a new trick, science denial, a very effective tactic embraced by the tobacco companies, oil companies, chemical companies, you name it. Here's a food industry funded expert in 2015, telling people they really don't need to worry about antibiotics in meat.
1: But is this meat actually healthier for consumers? Antibiotics are an important tool for farmers to treat sick animals and prevent animals from getting ill. By strategically using these drugs, farmers ensure only meat from healthy animals eventually makes it to your plate. Choosing a burrito or a foot-long sub-labeled antibiotic-free might make you feel like you're making a healthier choice, but in
0: reality, you're simply paying
1: more for a label.
0: He works for the very independent-sounding Center for Accountability and Science, an organization funded largely by the food and restaurant industries. Here's cancer researcher Clarence Cook Little in the 1950s, telling people they probably don't need to worry about smoking.
1: Uh, Dr. Little, have any cancer-causing agents been identified in cigarettes? No, none uh, whatever, uh, either in cigarettes or in any uh, product of smoking as such.
0: At the time, even Edward R. Murrow, the famous journalist Little was talking to there, had no idea the research he was citing had been paid for by the tobacco industry. And then there's the oil-funded Austrian physicist Fred Singer. He doesn't want consumers worrying themselves about climate change.
1: CO2, certainly Mm man-made, yes. So it's plausible that uh, humans could be affecting the climate, they would just have to look at the data. That's what we do. Now the satellites don't show any warming.
0: Singer ran the very pro-environment sounding science and environmental policy project, funded by a web of fossil fuel groups and dark money right-wing think tanks. There are plenty more examples across really any industry that might not love the idea of regulation. And look, nonprofits hire experts and fund think tanks, too. The problem here isn't so much that companies have a research agenda. That's sort of to be expected. It's how they hide that agenda and try to pawn industry-funded research off as being completely independent. Or even name a think tank something like the Center for Science that Helps the Little Guy so you think they're on your side. People shouldn't have to untangle a web of dark money organizations to figure out what information they can trust. It's an unfair burden to put on the public. Unfortunately, that's the world the PR experts created, and now we all have to live in it. But if you know how to spot certain techniques, you can save yourself a lot of time and confusion. To recap, here are the signs that you're being pitched by a fake expert. They misrepresent the other side's viewpoint, making a straw man argument, one they can easily tear to pieces. They cherry pick data points and studies, sharing the bits that support their argument and ignoring everything else. They don't tell you who's funding them or any of the research they quote. Their overarching message is that you shouldn't worry about whatever problem they're discussing. That the powers that be have it under control. The point of these kinds of campaigns is to convince you that whatever you're worrying about, don't. It's fine. The grown-ups have it and That's it for this episode. Next week, we're going to take a dark turn and learn about a technique that's been around for over 100 years. In fact, one of the very first PR techniques, the myth of the crisis actor. Thank you for joining us on this hair-raising journey through the murky history of PR. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to take this ride all the way to the end. Rigged is an original Critical Frequency production. Lots of documents, photos, videos, and other fun facts about the wild world of PR are on our website at rigged.media. Our producer is Martin Zoltz Ostwick. He also scored this season. Artwork is by Matthew Fleming. Our fact checker is Ashley Braun. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton of The First Amendment Project. Big thanks to Mary Anais Hegler, who you'll hear throughout this series. If you want to hear more of me and Mary joking around, check out Hot Take, the show we do about climate change. Archival tape in this episode is courtesy of the Library of Congress. The show is reported by me, Amy Westervelt. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.